Welcome to the Soundlands Podcast. I'm Louise Fagan. And I'm Jillian Wise. And we're here today with Araceli Hernandez-Laroche. Araceli is the founding director of South Carolina Centro Latino, El Centro, at the University of South Carolina Upstate, where she is also a professor of modern languages and past assistant chair of the Department of Language, Literature, and Composition. In addition to her roles on campus, she serves on the LGBT Fund Committee and the Chapman Cultural Center, as well as a board member of the ACLU South Carolina Chapter. Welcome, Araceli. Hello. So happy to be with both of you. Thanks for coming to speak with us. We want to take us back a little bit. We know that you're currently in South Carolina, but could you tell us about where you grew up? Yes. Well, I, I just um, want to say buenos dias. Good morning. Bonjour. I was born in Guadalajara, Jalisco, Mexico, and I grew up in Southern California in a town called Riverside, next, not too far from the University of California, Riverside, UC Riverside. And I say that because I'm very proud of what that university has become. It's been, for me, really a model of inclusion of, of students and faculty and staff from many different backgrounds. So the Riverside that I grew up in, I'm not going to say what years, <laughs> a long time ago, has really changed and it's been very, it's a very vibrant and dynamic part of Southern California. So I grew up in Southern California, but then I went off to college to UCLA. So I lived for four years in Los Angeles. One year I studied abroad in Toulouse, France which rocked my little world and changed <laughs> my career trajectory. And then I, I went on to do a PhD in Berkeley, California, and I was there for so many years <laughs> doing that. But one of those years, I, um, I was finishing my dissertation and also teaching at different universities in Paris, France. So um, that's where I met my husband. That's where I get the La Roche. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to New Jersey for three years, and I've been here for almost 11 years in, in South Carolina. And in between those periods, I lived in, in Paris, I lived in Florence in Italy, and I also was a, in charge of a study abroad immersion program in Cadiz, Spain. So I speak four languages, English, Spanish, French, and Italian. Wow. So what age did you move to Southern California? Um, two years old. Okay, so your childhood really was in South Carolina, or Southern California, excuse me. Yes, I get confused all the time. South Carolina, Southern California. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And at home, my father had this rule where we were not allowed to speak English or listen to English music or watch English TV. So I totally missed out on pop culture, American <laughs> pop culture. And that is why I, I still have a little bit of, a, of an accent when I speak English. It, because, you know, I grew up in a, I was as if time had frozen and I lived in the 70s and 80s or 60s, you know, my parents' version of, of Mexico. Mm. Uh, so that was, you know, the music they listened to. And so that's what we would do. And, and the reason he did that was so that we would be really grounded culturally and linguistically in both cultures so that he knew that he was very confident in our American education, public education, but he wanted to make sure that my, my parents were able to ground me in the Spanish language mm -hmm. so that we go to Mexico, I would not feel isolated or alienated from Mexican culture. You know, I was going just going to comment that that is a familiar story 
for friends of mine in Canada, growing up in Canada, that their homes were very much the language of their family culture. Portuguese, a lot of Portuguese. And and many of my friends my age still do carry an accent. And I think there's something really wonderful about being able to hold on to your culture while you're living in another. And I'm curious of how that affected your future in languages? Wow, that, that is a very loaded question. And, uh, you know, I could talk about that for three days, but I won't. <laughs> Just for a few minutes. Yes, you know, it, it's funny because I was giving a talk last week at the University of South Carolina, Columbia, and I was sharing with faculty there who invited me to speak on El Centro how many times we don't realize our intellectual DNA. And my intellectual DNA really came to the forefront maybe a year ago or less than a year ago. I, I woke up a Saturday morning and I noticed that I had some messages on Facebook and my sister shared with us. It was this front page of the local paper in Riverside, California. And I wish I had it in front of me, but it was a very somber looking family, an older gentleman and four of his teenage children, all immigrants. And that was my grandfather who passed away when I lived in France the first time in 1998. I'm dating myself. And his three, four children, and one of them my mother, who's no longer with us, and it said, the headline said something about how lonely it, it was for these immigrants from Mexico in the 1970s. I think it was 1973 or 1974, how lonely and isolated they felt that they were so grateful to be in the United States, to be able to you know, work and study, to have you know, legal documentation to do that but at the same time, how isolated they felt from, from the community. And I thought, oh my God, Riverside has changed so much because now you walk anywhere and you hear Spanish. And you know, I, I, it made me so sad and I thought, oh, this is why I do what I do. I try to bridge cultures with, with language. And you know, growing up, we, we didn't grow up in the best neighborhood um, in, in town. It's a neighborhood called Casa Blanca, ironically, the White House. <laughs> <laughs> and has a, a big history this 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 neighborhood and and I remember just you know amazing people who who were my neighbors a lot of mothers a lot of people who really contributed to the welfare of families of the community but that talent we cannot value because it's not in our same language so you know mothers like my mom Carmen Hernandez, no longer here, who who did so much for other children to feed them, to make sure they had a safe place, and, you know, who really worked to educate us at home. But, you know, those contributions are kind of lost in translation and not seen. So that's kind of what I try to do as the director of this center that we founded not even two years ago is that everything we do is grounded in language, in valuing culture, in anchoring ourselves and our relationship to, to Spanish or an indigenous language spoken that our parents spoke from Mexico or Guatemala or, or El Salvador. You know, maybe we are fluent speakers of Spanish or an indigenous language. Maybe we feel outsiders within our own families because we don't, we don't feel that we express ourselves well in it. So, you know, there, there's all of these intimate, intricate, complicated relationships to 
a mother tongue or to our family's mother tongue. So there, there there's a lot there. <laughs> it sounds like from what you were describing that your father really instilled an importance in learning Spanish in that language and having that at home. Was your were your parents encouraging of learning of you learning other languages too? Like were languages in general really valued? Yes, you know, I think so. I remember that we were in Mexico. My my father would really try to take us back to to Mexico at least once a year. And we were maybe near Puerto Vallarta where you would go to this beach called Guayabitos, not too far from Guadalajara, Jalisco, the state where, where I was born. And I remember there were some tourists, and I don't remember if the tourists, yes, I think they, they were American tourists and they spoke English. And all of these adults around me kind of looked at me like, oh, make them feel welcome. Make them feel like, you know, you speak the language that they speak. And, you know, my father had this very thick accent and he thought I didn't have an accent in English. So, you know, I had more magical powers with this language. And I remember that I just kind of shut down and I didn't feel like interpreting or translating. And then my father was a little upset because they wanted to show friendliness, you know, like, you know, if, if, if you need anything, there's someone here who, who speaks your language. And maybe I was just shy. Maybe I was four or five years old. But I kind of do remember that there was always this admiration for people who spoke two languages or three or, or more. And there's an expression too in Spanish, and I'm sure it exists in other languages, where, you know, I think the expression is, you know, if you speak four languages, you're worth four people. <laughs> and I think also for, for immigrants who come to a country where the dominant language is not their mother tongue, I think you, you feel a little frustrated mm -hmm. that you cannot learn fast enough that language or you cannot learn it for many reasons, many valid reasons, lack of time, lack of support, lack of so many exposure, time to study. So I think language, you know, it's something you, you always struggle with and admire at the same time. You mentioned that being in France was pivotal, that first trip. Do you mind sharing with us what happened or what what that transformation was? Well, you know, I, I, I landed, I was probably 19 or 20 years old. I landed in this beautiful city of Toulouse, France, in southern France, not too far away from the Spanish border. You know, it, I just felt I was closer to Spain. And I just remember meeting people, students my age from Italy, from Sweden, from Norway, from Chile, from, you know, all over the world. And that's where I kind of felt like, you know, in, in some ways I have more in common now with them, these students studying abroad, than maybe, you know, when I go back and continue my life as a, as a college student in, in the United States because we all had the experience of being ambassadors of our culture, of our language. But where it got a little complicated is that, you know, people would look at me and they would assume I was coming from a Latin American country or from a North African country because I had this, an accent when I spoke French. And then, you know, having to explain, no, really, I, you know, I'm, you know, I'm Mexican-American and this is what it means and forced me to, uh, to be more aware too of, of the pride in two cultures that I bring to a third culture. Um, so, so that for me, that was kind of fascinating. And there too, in, in France, I met people 
other students from North Africa who assumed I, you know, Algerians assumed I was Tunisian. Tunisian assumed mm -hmm. that I was Moroccan. And that's where it kind of I became more aware about France, France's relationship to North Africa, you know, the, the wars <laughs> that were fought not too long before during the decolonization period. And I was just so fascinated with that history. I disappointed my father, I came back to the United States and instead of continuing my studies so that I could prepare to be an immigration attorney or an international law attorney, I wanted to do a PhD in, in French studies and, and study, you know, France's relationship to North Africa and, and to other African countries and to the Caribbean and so much more. So I think, I, you know, my father really struggled with that because I don't think he thought that he saw me as a future professor <laughs> and what that meant and, and not to be teaching about Mexican culture mm. at that time. So, you know, I'm always, I always had to kind of apologize to, to a different part of my identity for doing this or the other. And if I could go back to that conversation that I had or that presentation I had with the faculty, Latino faculty at USC Columbia, I started my conversation saying, you know, I have a, I have a dirty secret. I have a PhD in French studies. I don't have a PhD <laughs> in, in Latin, Latin American studies or Latinx studies. And, and you know, I'm going to have I'm going to stop doing that because the reception I got, I felt love and, and admiration for what we were building in this part of, of South Carolina, you know, something that had not been built before. You know, I, I think, too, I want to emphasize that this idea of El Centro came about from realizing that, yes, I was a, a, a French studies professor, but at the same time, I was a Latina professor in American higher ed and realizing how few of us are in this higher ed world and the implications of that. So that is kind of how also I started to envision why we needed El Centro to elevate the talent of Hispanic and Latinos in within higher ed and beyond. Would you be able to, to describe the racial landscape in South Carolina and how, you, how you've experienced it? So, you know, we tend to think about the South and, and South Carolina as having a very strong and rich history, but also a very complicated history with racial relationships and the civil rights movement was spearheaded here and a very complicated history of, of wanting to hold on to slavery longer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, the, the Jim Crow era. But really, in the United States, every state has struggled with the, respecting the human rights of, of everyone. <laughs> but I know that when I first got here, I wanted to be a student of the South and, and learn more about the very complicated history here, but also seeing that many of the conversations were necessary, very black and white conversations, and not really knowing where to situate myself within that conversation or just listening. But at the same time, you know, I came to, to South Carolina in 2012. So, you know, the, the country is evolving. Right now, the biggest minority in the United States is the Hispanic Latino population, and that's just going to continue to grow. And in South Carolina, for example, according to the 2010 census, the Latino Hispanic community grew by 148%. In 2020, the Hispanic community 
in Spartanburg, South Carolina, where the university is located and where I live, the Latino community grew by 66.4%. So, you know, within my university world, I was trying to learn more from my colleagues or as experts on Southern history and also contributions of African Americans, Black Americans to the country and to the state, to the city. But at the same time, I felt like there needed to be more attention to place to study the growing Latino population that I was seeing and hearing around me. I was hearing a lot of Spanish every time I, I went anywhere. So um, I, I felt that there needed to be more visibility of that community so that our students could be better prepared to lead local global teams. And I spent my entire youth learning about other cultures. I also studied Italian studies and Mediterranean studies. I, you know, I speak a few languages. So I wanted to kind of infuse this curiosity in my students for you know paying attention who lives amongst us here in, in Spartanburg, South Carolina, in the upstate. You know, we have a growing Russian and, and Ukrainian community. Why? You know, we, we have these big companies like BMW and Michelin and, and other, but so many other companies from all over the world. And, you know, if we are going to to live and thrive together, we need to be more knowledgeable about mm -hmm. each other. Mm -hmm. Yes. So who does El Centro primarily serve? Like who, who are your clients? Or, you know, you were set up in the university, through the university, but is it a community-based or a bridge? Wow. I love that question. <laughs> I'm going to answer it this way. I feel that, you know, we, we created El Centro and the two bases of support, the, the, the two bases that are most fired up to engage and work with us are the student leaders, Latino student leaders, and the Latino Hispanic community. The, the, my assistant director, Maria Francisco Monteso, she's from Spain and I'm from Mexico. So we're this dynamic duo, I, I believe. <laughs> we complement each other. And, and, you know, for Del Centro, we have three pillars. One pillar is Latinx interdisciplinary studies and civic leadership, because we believe in bringing to campus speakers who are early emerging scholars, who are Latino and Hispanic. If we want to diversify the professorate, we need to invite them and, and help them practice their job talks if they're graduate students about to finish their PhD. But we also believe in bringing to campus civic leaders. You know, people, it doesn't matter their level of education, but those community champions who really move the needle forward, who really spotlighted a gap, who galvanized their communities for change. You know, I, I think that if we can do this through our second pillar, which is the multilingual public humanities. We organize events, sometimes in English, sometimes we begin in English for half an hour and then we do the same content in Spanish the second half hour, and sometimes we do it entirely in Spanish. Why? Because many times around the university we have community members 
who have so much knowledge, but if everything is just in English, when we have a multilingual community next door, then we are excluding those voices and their talent. Some of them were very educated in their home countries, but they, they struggle with the English language. So why don't we do an event and talk about art and, and have these conversations, these intellectual, artistic conversations in Spanish too, so that students can feel that we're honoring their home language. And then the third pillar, I always joke and celebrate that it is the sexiest pillar, <laughs> and that is translation and community interpreting. And it is Maria Francisco Montesó, the assistant director. That's her expertise. So we're working right now with law enforcement in on this language equity working group so that through El Centro, we can provide certificates for bilingual professionals working with victims advocates with law enforcement so that there's more there are more tools to communicate with victims of violence and i don't know if i answered your question <laughs> oh absolutely I was just going to ask if you can describe why this work is so important and impactful for the community. Wow, where do I begin? I was actually invited to, to give a talk just on this last weekend at that university, and I was thinking about the impact. So I thought, I, I feel I know what the impact is, but let me ask other people. And you know, one of my dear colleagues, her name is Gabby Drake. She's actually Tejana, she's from the border, uh, El Paso, and Ciudad Juarez. And one of the things she said is, you know, students are fired up. We used to have one Latino group. Now we have like four or five because they're feeling more at home at the university. They're feeling like, you know, I, I support that other Latino group, but I'm different. And I want to really, you know, focus on civic leadership. They're more focused on, you know, culture or celebrating culture. So seeing how student leaders have really reached out to us, we co-sponsored a Latinx prom, and I hope they're not listening, but I thought, oh, aren't they a little old for prom? Doesn't that happen in high school? But then, you know, I, I realized that they missed out on their prom because of COVID. And it was such a beautiful celebration, students. And also I admire this so much about my my Latino student leaders is that they're very inclusive of celebrating two other cultures. So I see Hmong students, I see students of Indian descent who also join their clubs, African-American students, rural students, students from all ethnicities. But you know, another demonstration of impact is that as a professor, I spend a lot of time on social media trying to rally the troops and showing through images what we're doing. And thanks to that and to a student leader, we were introduced to this beautiful family, the Swift family, John and Kelly Swift. And they didn't know this, but on my birthday in September, they surprised us with their first donation to establish two types of scholarships. Oh. And that donation was in the amount of $50,000. Wow. 
you know, I spend my birthday just, you know, crying. I'm going to get tear. I'm going to tear up again. But I just thought, you know, how beautiful that someone very local, very here from the South has seen the need to bring more visibility to this community. And also this family recognizes the talent of the Latino youth. And they donated these funds specifically for El Centro, for students to practice their mentorship, their civic leadership, and to also give back to other students from similar backgrounds. And and then, you know, I, I shared too, I think a couple of weeks ago, I got invited to share about El Centro at Harvard. Wow. <laughs> wow. Even my students were impressed, and I'm even more impressed because it's not at a faculty conference. It's at, a, at an undergraduate conference on public service and social justice. So undergraduate students from all over the country who are very motivated and dedicated to change their communities through the public scholarship they're engaged in wherever they study. I'm gonna be on a panel with two other faculty to just fire them up (laughs) and share a little bit the El Centro story. So for me, to be honest, uh, you know, maybe I'm bragging a little bit, but we've gotten so many invitations to speak at different universities who want to start their Centro Latino, you know, whether it be in Wyoming or whatever state. If we can be a little bit of an example of what you can do with few resources, if you have the, the vision, and, and I love that we are celebrating the art too, and the arts are for future students who are going to be doctors or nurses. So I always try to, with our mentees, how do the public humanities enhance your preparation to serve communities as a, as a rural doctor, as a physical therapist, as a nurse, as a business leader. We all need creativity. We all need to communicate well. We all need more knowledge of our cultures of other cultures. And congratulations. That is all fabulous. Yeah. It's very exciting. And we were curious about how this program that you have the center measures up nationally. I mean, are there other programs like this? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, you know, the way we, it, it was kind of nice because Maria and I, when we were asked to, to put forth a proposal for an institute we just thought you know what let's do an inventory of everything we've done you know the invisible lever and then i had a mentor he's the president of cal state fresno dr saul jimenez sandoval who worked with me to really make this this golden opportunity a better one he looked and examined this proposal and he said really what you're trying to do you have three pillars think about it as pillars and this is what it sounds like you're doing and thanks to that advice it it kind of caught on and there's a growing conversation too about the public humanities public facing work in american universities and at the same time when we were founding el centro i was on a few committees with the modern language association present in the united states and also in canada and i was serving on a committee called valuing the public humanities and we published this summer guidelines for tenure and promotion for faculty in all types of institutions so that their work meeting community needs 
doing more public facing work, doing what we're doing now, podcasts, that, you know, our value is not just in writing traditional books and peer reviewed articles, but also in contributing op-eds, in helping community organizations with research for grants and for other things. So I really wanted to focus on bridging community needs. So that, that's why the public humanities, how do we contribute to dialogue? by sharing art, by discussing theater, by welcoming more historians. So that was very important to me. I mean, it sounds like the university system has been fairly supportive them of the advocacy work that you're doing. Would you say that that's accurate? Yes, yes, it, it's been so, it's been so wonderful. But I think too, that support is there because there's a national conversation in the United States in American higher ed about declining enrollments of students across the board. And there's a big cliff, the enrollment cliff. So we need to be, we universities, we need to be a little bit more proactive in enrolling students and in reaching out to students. But where there's a lot of opportunity for growth is in the Latino student population, encouraging more Latinos. You know, the Latino population is growing so much everywhere. How do we get them enrolled in higher ed? So I think too, there was this understanding that we needed to do more to attract that growing population. But yes, I have to give out a shout out to my provost, Provost Pam Steinke, because I report to the provost. And that is so wonderful because I have an opportunity. Maria and I report to her. We meet with her once a month. So we learn from her. We need more coaching. We need more mentoring. She provides that and she has this broader, better view of higher ed. So we are able to learn from her. But at the same time, we're able to influence, I hope, mm-hmm. and, and that, that community voice. But I also have to give a mega shout out to my chancellor, Chancellor Benny Harris. He's the first African-American chancellor in our university's history. And if you look up his chancellor messages, he's always really celebrating the type of public-facing work that we do. And for me, it means so much when he will say in front of an audience, there are so few Hispanic and Latina faculty, and we don't see the invisible labor of mentoring so many students from their backgrounds and we need to do a better job of doing that and just knowing that he understands the extra extra work that we we put for example in october we had an opportunity to invite the swift family to meet students they're called avanzando students they're part of this first gen cohort you know the chancellor joined us to celebrate them. The students were there to share their stories. The Swift family was there. And the chancellor said something that, you know, almost made me tear up again. And he he said, I don't know if you all are aware, but Araceli is on sabbatical. She asked to be on modified sabbatical because I, I, I felt that I couldn't walk away from directing a center that is not even two years old. And, you know, 
what we do is build a relationship with students, but also with the community. And if I disappeared for a semester, I just didn't feel that it made sense. So the fact that he, he saw that it's not really a sacrifice for me, but it's a duty and that he, he sees that, just I just thought, okay, you know what? He understands my work. And as you know, <laughs> powerful women in front of me, Jillian and Louise, when people understand why you're doing what you're doing and how much effort it takes, you know you feel supported. For sure, for sure. That's very true. You know, thinking of back again, too, about the the university, the community face, but also the internal relationships with the students and the other faculty. How important is it that when you're trying to attract Latinx students to USC Upstate, that there are Latinx professors? Oh, well, you know, this is, you, you hit it on the nail. Louise, I, you know, as an, as an undergraduate student in LA, in Los Angeles, I would see professors, Latino professors, Hispanic professors in other disciplines. I even saw one in French, in French studies. And I, I remember we went horseback riding. It was a professor, a visiting professor from Colombia. Her French was so beautiful and, and I, you know, I kind of wanted to be like her. And then I took classes, general ed classes in urban planning and anthropology and different disciplines with Latino professors. When I went to Berkeley in my program, I, I didn't have any Latino professors, but there was this one beautiful professor, Jose Rabasa, in the Spanish department. And he was a pre-Columbian Mexican scholar. But ironically, he was an expert in Jean-Paul Sartre. And that's who I did my I did my my dissertation on public intellectuals and I would just you know stick to him and follow him around and and learn Nagua with his graduate students the lingua franca from Mexico just because I think I didn't I didn't articulate it to myself but I needed to belong to the university I needed to see a Mexican professor like me so I would kind of go out of my way also intellectually just just to be around him then when I was a professor of Spanish and French in New Jersey for three years and then here realizing that there was hardly anyone like me. I, I was the first Mexican-American tenured professor at this university and last year I became the first Hispanic full professor in the university's history. Wow. And, and that I should be proud but it makes me really sad mm -hmm. at the same time because that has opened up a few scars for me you know being the only one in the room if I don't speak up and if I don't say this but there's always going to be I'm going to ruffle feathers you know sometimes you know when there are so few people like you can be more vulnerable to academic bullying mm -hmm. and for me what is even more devastating is when people don't notice it when it's so obvious or when they notice it and they don't step in and, and that you know I don't want to criticize my university but I think I've seen research too that happens everywhere where there are so few people like this category mm -hmm. or background. So that's why I really love the business and professional women. Yeah. That's how I met Louise through this network of, of, of professional women here in Spartanburg. And you know, you all fire me up. That's that was a tactic that I used was when I feel like other people don't really understand what I'm doing, then I go out into the community and create my own university. Yeah. <laughs> 
me on my own board of champions. So thank you, Louise, for for being there. Well, that's kind of you to say. It's interesting, Araceli, because I moved from Canada to South Carolina in 2014, and I've obviously been in the U.S. a lot over my life. But when I moved to Spartanburg, South Carolina, I didn't know anybody, and except my husband. And I looked for my community, and I found it in that group of women as well. And so I can totally relate to that idea of looking for the people who speak your metaphorical language or share a value system. Or, you know, you have that, you feel you have that common ground within it's so important. But I, I also just want to say that, you know, you are a pioneer here at USC Upstate. And I wonder if that was what your professors, when you were younger and you were following them, if they were feeling the same thing. If, if they were feeling the same thing? Well, you know, maybe, well, thank you for saying that. <laughs> But also, you know, pioneering hurts a lot because you really get out of your comfort zone and sometimes you get knocked down a little bit. But I, I, I think I see that more when I was in middle school and elementary in high school with the teachers who were of who were Mexican American and who went out of their way to make sure we celebrated Cinco de Mayo or Mexican Independence Day and I think those were the teachers who were young in the 1960s in California and that there was this generation of young people high school students and college students who banded together and said you know enough against the discrimination of, of Mexican Americans of, of our parents so I think that I was able to benefit from the legacy of that, that civil rights movement for Mexican Americans. So yes, you know, I, I thank them. So that's why when I came to South Carolina and I saw that my students didn't grow up with these passionate community warriors, they, they were probably like the first ones ever at that school, at that rural school. I just thought, oh my God, you know, I have some emotional scars from, from sometimes feeling second, like a second class citizen growing up. But how do my students feel when they don't have access to as many community warriors as I did? <laughs> so that, that, that's also one of the reasons that it motivated me to make sure to make visible folks like that all over South Carolina, and to invite mm -hmm. them to campus and to amplify their work and voice. In your own individual experience, how would you say that this work has impacted you? Well, you know, it's been every single day is so wonderful. You know, there, there are struggles and frustrations because Maria and I, we, we have to work eight days a week <laughs> because so many people contact us and, and so many people want different things and, and more mentoring too. And, and we want to document and archive what we're doing. But I, I think it's brought a lot of purpose and urgency, you know? Sometimes people say, well, why don't you consider these other opportunities? Or I, I see you leaving your institution. You have a bigger platform and maybe you'll want to do things with more resources. But I so believe in being here in South Carolina. I feel like there, there's an opportunity to maybe build an example of what we can do in places where there's hardly any organized Latino groups, like maybe in the Midwest somewhere or in some rural areas. So I just have so much faith in what we can continue to build and co-create together with students and community members. So I'm, I'm kind of fired up every day and sometimes that's a problem <laughs> because I, you know, I don't have time to do it all. Huh? 
Wow. So you had mentioned, so you speak four languages. How many languages does your husband speak? He had to learn Spanish <laughs> he, you know, to be able to relate to my Mexican family. And he's been with me to Mexico, but he was learning German. So what language do you speak at home then? <laughs> oh, we, we speak French. <laughs> okay. We speak French, yes, and that has even influenced how I speak Spanish because sometimes I do a Facebook Live in Spanish called Las Profesoras y Tú with these community advocates in Charleston, South Carolina, and we are four or five professors here at USC Upstate and at Wofford. And sometimes people will listen to it, and I think I'm speaking Spanish, but people will say, I hear the intonation in French. <laughs> it makes me sad because I want to be a purist in each, yeah. one, each language. But no, that's, that's not possible and it shouldn't no. be the goal. Do you have any final words or anything you want to share? Yes. Well, I want to thank you for bringing visibility to El Centro and all of that helps. And I want to share with anyone at home, whatever cultural background you have, to not be afraid to share it, to reach out to others, to learn about others in your neighborhood. I feel that, especially now in this post almost pandemic world, we need to reconnect with each other. And there's no better way than through the public sphere, through podcasts, through these conversations, you know, occupying the public square and really sharing our, our fears, our dreams, and inviting others to build together a more inclusive community. Hi, Jillian. Araceli. Yeah, Araceli. I just like... She had. She was so like calm and like intentional with what she was saying. Mm -hmm. Very deliberate, very thoughtful, I felt. I mean, she has, first of all, she has this beautiful speaking voice anyway. You can like, I'm sure like whatever language oh she's gosh, speaking, yes. I would just be melting. Yeah. <laughs> <You know>? yeah. <laughs> Read me this yeah. menu in Spanish, then the yeah. same menu in French. You know what I mean? It would just be, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's there's also something I think that speaks to like, I always call this like the librarian in me that is interested in how people focus on just one like specific thing. So to think that her doctorate thesis, I believe, was on something around like mm. the linguistics of a certain language in a certain place at a certain time. I mean, that's so, you know, very focused. And, you know, mm -hmm. I've kind of always mm -hmm. liked to know a lot about everything as opposed to being really good at one, <laughs> you know? Right. So it, do you know what I mean? Just like, I don't know, that discipline, yeah. that focus. So just, yeah. Oh, yeah. And she's like going to speak at Harvard. <laughs> It's, That's I know, crazy. It's, and it's so fitting. She should be. That is, this is the stage that she mm -hmm. occupies, you know, like she absolutely, the work that they're doing here is in South Carolina is that level and needs to be recognized as such. And I'm so glad mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. she's going to go and occupy that space and share that the experiences from here yeah and to talk about all of this work that she's doing that i mean that the whole center is doing and the thought that that could bring up 
like the possibility that that could then inspire other people to do similar mm-hmm. things in their communities would be mm-hmm. amazing, especially at the institutional level. Agreed. I had had one last question that I had wanted to ask her, and mm, uh, I wanted to ask her how her family, you know, because she had said, you know, her parents wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer. I think it was lawyer. You know, she was kind of on this track, or not that they wanted, but that was kind of the expectation. And so, and she, mm-hmm. the work that she's mm-hmm. doing though is so, it's an incredible life of learning and of service. And I wondered, so I sent her a note and asked her, and she re- oh. she did. And did she reply? And I wanted, and oh I my wanted gosh. to read that to you. <gasps> Fun <laughs> surprise. Okay, I was not expecting that. She said, my mom was proud, and so is my dad. He calls me badass, chinkona in brackets. I think that's how you pronounce it, chingona. I saw him in San Francisco last month when I was at a conference. My sisters and dad drove in pouring rain to meet me for three days there. They wanted to come to my talks and cheer me on. And then she shared a photo of all of them on Instagram. So we will share her Instagram handle at the end, so or in the show mm-hmm. notes, so that people can go on and see this beautiful yeah. picture of her. Fun. Yeah. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> I'm so glad you reached out to her to ask. I You're so sneaky. You. She also said... So said, you and your daughter are a dynamic duo and an inspiration. And that is high praise from Araceli. <laughs> I'm just going to throw that in there, even though none of this is about Amazing. us. But come on, that's a great comment. <laughs> also wanted to circle back on the roots stuff we were talking oh. about. So, because I went, you, we shared the link for roots in the show notes a couple weeks ago. Or yeah, mm-hmm. in a couple episodes ago. And... I was like, I'm going to go back and look again. And I look, and all of their stuff has changed. Again? So I'm worried that people are now going to go and listen to the episode, look at the root stuff, and be like, this isn't what she's describing. I'm confused. Why did it change? Uh, well, now I'm worried, though, that what you saw <laughs> isn't what I saw. But I'm pretty sure we looked at it together and we saw the same thing. Can you open up Roots right now? Okay. But did you not, like you went on it because it was the whole tea cozy conversation. I was confused yeah, about that yeah. weird woodland. I was like, there was only one of these things that did not right. make sense. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm like questioning myself again. Well, <laughs> so how has it changed? So if you go to like women jackets and outerwear, it's just got a lot of like oh. emblems and print and not print, but like. But it is a departure. I understand. And like, so obviously these like are not speaking to, like everything does not speak to us. But honestly, like I think some people look at the A-line and go, what the heck was an A-line? Like, huh? well, I, I mean, I just think they're trying to be a lot of things for a lot of people. What I'm more saying is this is not what I was looking at when I was talking about it initially. It was a very different style. Right. And I don't know if you remember that too or if I'm remembering something differently. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. I'm more just bringing it up because (laughs) they've changed it all or like a lot of it since we first spoke about it. And what I was describing is not what's reflected Uh, on the website anymore. So for anyone who's still listening, (laughs) who listened to... That episode a couple weeks ago, and then again when we revisited about the tea cozy, I just want to clarify, if you're looking in real time, February 2023, it's 
not, not what I was describing. It is so. not what you're describing. There's still a lot of beautiful things, but it's not what originally you you were you felt was worth mentioning. Because yeah, we were yeah, like, exactly. Run, There's stuff don't I like walk. on it still. Yeah, and I just I didn't want to. No, you can. I still it. like a lot of this stuff, but I just really liked what they were doing before, it's and true. it's since changed, and right. I was just shocked. Mm. So anyway, I just needed to get that off my chest. I mean, thanks again to Araceli Hernandez-Laroche for being here and speaking with us. If you want more information about El Centro, you can visit www.uscupstate.edu forward slash academics forward slash el dash c-e-n-t-r-o. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, download the episodes, like, and review the Sound Lens podcast, and share it with someone you think would enjoy it. You can also follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Sound Lens Podcast. And for more episodes, visit soundlenspodcast.com. Love you. Love you too. Bye, hun.